Welcome back to another edition of the Smart Podcast, sports medicine and related topics, SMRT Podcast. I'm Chris Raby, your host, along with Dr. Jason Young, an orthopedic surgeon here in St. Louis. You can find Dr. Young at his website, jasonpyoungmd.com, or at Advanced Orthopedics at 8225 Clayton Road. This week, our guest is John Ang. John has an extensive background and impressive Background as well. Over 15 years of coaching, racing, strength, and conditioning experience. He uh, is a physical therapist out in the Portland area right now, working with all sorts of folks, including elite athletes, and working with Adidas. John works with teams and individuals of all ages and abilities, emphasizing injury, prehabilitation, and long-term athletic achievement. But he can tell you a lot better than I can about everything he does. Really excited about visiting with John, talking about the running world, uh, Adidas, the shoe industry, and more. As always, if you have ideas, questions, thoughts, email us, smrt, podcast at gmail.com, smrt, podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to get your feedback. And without further ado, this week's edition of the program with special guest, John Ang. Work it, make it, do it, makes us harder, better, faster, stronger. Work it, harder, make it, better, do it, faster, makes us stronger, all than Welcome back to the Smart Podcast. Chris Raby and Dr. Jason Young with you. And we head now to Portland and say hello to John Ang. John, over 15 years of coaching, racing, strength and conditioning experience, physical therapist. You can find him online at villageptpdx.com. John, how are you? How is the How's the weather in Portland? I imagine it maybe mirrors uh, some of what we've dealt with in St. Louis recently. Yeah, not quite as cold out there, but we're uh, we're definitely a little bit soggy today. Hey John, I'm curious uh, about your background. Tell us and tell our listeners a little bit about how you got into the industry, but really how it started. Take us back to college days, how you got interested in this, where it took you, and uh, just kind of lead us down the winding road that, that now has you in Portland doing what you're doing right now. Wow, that's a... Uh a bit of a twisty road there, but... Um, well, we've I'll got a long time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll keep it fairly uh, fairly brief, but, uh, you know, back back in college, I, I went in thinking that I was going to play D1 baseball, and that was quickly uh, quickly put by the wayside as uh, as I got cut that, that first year. And um, luckily, I had uh, a great group of guys around me, uh, good roommates, and, uh, and I also look at some of them as mentors as well. Uh, but we, we started running, and I ran in high school and uh, ended up doing first marathon in, in college and then quickly went to my first triathlon, and, um, and then that just sort of built. And uh, I didn't think I was going to go into science as I graduated college, but Fast forward a few years, living in Asia, racing over there, coming back into D.C., and started uh, running health clubs and personal training, and found out I was decent at that, but wanted more, and thought I was going to go to med school. Moved to Oregon, where my wife is from, and on my way to med school interviews, I said, wait a second, I don't want to work with sick people. And that sounds maybe bad or whatnot, but I think it was a really sort of a 
epiphany moment where I said, you know, I want to work with healthy people. And um, maybe I overlooked a profession that uh, I overlooked way too early in the process. And, and, and so I went into a tailspin for a couple of years. And then uh, while I was coaching a running program for one of the local running shops here in Portland, uh, one of the PTs said, hey, you know what? Why don't you come to the clinic and see what we do? And lo and behold, it wasn't just working with old people. It actually could be an environment where you work with athletes. And it really was that natural segue from the strength and conditioning background that I'd had uh, working with high school athletes and then coaching runners and triathletes and my own background that uh, led into really going into PT school, uh, sort of one of those old guys going into PT school in my 30s, and really with a mission, right, going in there and just gobbling up all the information I could get, tying that back in with that strength and conditioning. And, um, you know, I, I managed to get... Uh, the opportunity to work at one of the premier running clinics here in Portland and really in the world uh, called Pace Therapeutic Associates. And we had a great contract with, uh, with Nike's elite athletes and especially the runners in the Oregon Project. Uh, my boss was the head strength and conditioning coach and working with him and under him really had a great opportunity to, to see what coaching and uh, training and physical therapy and prehab and rehab and strength and conditioning all go into what you know what it, what it takes for an Olympic athlete and for an elite level program like that so whether it was NFL and you know Nike athletes coming through or or whatnot we had this great uh great scenario and great environment for that um maybe a little long-winded answer but that kind of brings me back to where I am and so yeah yeah Johnny is uh a uh a pretty humble being, so he won't he won't tell you how many how many marathons have you run, John? Uh, I'm coming up on 17. <laughs> so, uh, what what's your favorite one? New York. New York. I hate to say that I'm from Boston, and I hate to say that but <laughs> New York is just is uh. just so cool. You know, 5 a.m. in the morning, you're you're on the ferry, you're looking back at uh, on Manhattan, and you see the Statue of Liberty and the sun coming up. It's 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 breathtaking. The whole the whole course is breathtaking. Didn't you do uh, the Great Wall Marathon in China? Yeah, I did. I did that back in uh, in 2000. And uh, let's let's that's not so much a marathon as it is pretty much the largest stairmaster in the world i was gonna say what is Can the great wall marathon because that sounds miserable <laughs> well and, and here's the other part is that it's not just the stairmaster it's a stairmaster with not a single consistent riser of a step right right up down up down up down it's um yeah, and let's just say, well, back in 2000, now it's become a pretty polished event, but back in 2000, let's just say there wasn't exactly aid stations along the way. Right. I can't imagine. <laughs> <clears throat> so um, I have a couple of questions to throw at you. Um, in terms of, obviously, I think a lot of this uh, particular podcast uh would be talking about elite runners and, and that kind of thing. Obviously we know, we know as a therapist, you, you treat all sorts of, of injuries, but I think one of the most common things that I see on a weekly basis in my office are folks who are injured from running 
And um, it's a very unique group of people. Um, I'm I'm in the group a little bit. I'm I'm not. I can't really call myself a runner anymore, but I, I used to do it. I've done a few marathons myself. But it's a group where there is a unbelievably, sometimes insane amount of dedication to running. I mean, so much so that I will see folks who have an injury that requires them to stop and they're in tears in the office when you tell them that they can't run. So um, I think we're going to circle around some of the kind of broader topics first, but you know, what, what, what's your approach? I mean, it's a, it's one of the hardest conversations in, in my office is, is trying to speak to the runner, get them to stop running so that they don't prolong their injury. So how do you, how do you manage that on the, on the therapy side? Yeah, so that's a really great question. And I think you're already starting to get to the heart of the answer to that question because you are trying to get into their shoes. Um, and you may not get completely in there. Um, you're right. It is a different mindset. Um, but maybe, maybe let me kind of de- de-glorify, if you will, sort of working with elite runners um, and then kind of relate it back to to you and I, who are the average runners, and then, you know, the, the people who, you know, this might be a little too blunt, but are kind of still holding on to the dream, right? Um, working with an elite runner versus someone like you and I, and the anatomy is the same, the physiology is the same, right? The injuries are the same. Here's what I've learned. The only difference is the time at which it takes for those injuries to develop, right? So you take, you know, you take someone like Mo or Galen or whatever, they... Their, in, their overuse injuries are going to develop within two or three days just because of the sheer volume, the sheer load that they're putting through their system, right? You and I, those don't develop for two, three, four weeks. Right. But within those two, three, four weeks, you know, you've got all these other layers of the onion that have been added on. You've got movement compensations. You've got muscular uh, compensations happening, right? Um, you've got stride uh, altercations that are happening. And, and, you know, so now you with those cases, they're almost harder, right? The elite athletes are actually really easy to fix because you're always seeing them, you're always testing them, and the minute you see anything asymmetrical, boom, you're fixing it right away. With our, you know, more recreational runners, it's, it's harder because they've already developed so many other patterns and whatnot. And uh, if the way that I approach it with these, with these type of runners in the office is simply to understand that this is a serious issue. I want them to understand it's a serious issue, but it, I, I try not to focus on you have to stop running because in most cases, a lot of these patients actually don't need to stop running. What needs to happen is the change in the style of their running, right? Because ultimately, we know that training load and training intensity isn't really what makes injuries happen, right? What really makes these injuries happen is the rate at which change happens. So, for example, it's the rate at which you increase volume, right? The rate at which you increase the, the intensity, right? And, and what I'm talking about is a rate at which that is faster than the tissue's ability to adapt, right? Because right? that's what we're doing with training, right? We're, we're, we're training our tissue to become more durable 
and we're giving it time to adapt to then withstand the more intense, more high-volume loads that we want to put through it um, so that it's more durable for whatever duration event that we're trying to do. Really, So when you think about that and you pull that back to the athlete, you start to look at all these other parameters like what, where are they, right? So this takes me kind of away from, uh, you know, what I learned in PT school and puts me back in my coach's chair about really what are smart training principles and how do we modify their training plan so that they can allow tissue adaptation to occur. We might have to go to back to my physical therapy hat where I have to figure out ways to offload the injured tissue so that we can allow that to heal. Well, isn't that one of the, I mean, isn't that, that's one of the things that I have to spend a lot of time with folks. You know, let's say they come in with um, probably one of the more common, let's say Achilles or, or patella tendonitis. They come in, um, it's pretty common for folks to just recreationally run, right? They, you know, like today in St. Louis, it's 60 degrees. And so people haven't been outside for six weeks. Everyone's got the flu. So everyone's like, oh, I feel you know, let's get outside, let's exercise, and they haven't done much, and they go for five miles because it's a great day, and then, and then uh, you know, they start having some aches and pains. And so what, what I find myself having to do a lot of times is discuss with them that the tendonitis that they came in with is typically caused from a different source of the problem. In other words, their hips are weak or they, their gait's off or their cadence isn't, isn't correct when they're running and, and those sorts of things. So talk to us a little bit about when you detect these kinds of things, how do you work backwards to then solve that problem? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I think what you just explained, that, that scenario when someone comes into the clinic, they, you know, the weather was good and they just went out and banged out six miles and that's the most they've run in the last six months, right? That, that, that's a really an example of an acute itis, right, like a true itis. Yep. Um, that you kind of say, well, you, you kind of pull them back and you look them in the eye and you go, well, that was kind of dumb, don't you think? But <laughs> we would, ex- but you'd say, you know what? We'd but expect- it was a great day. <laughs> yeah, it was a great day. And you know what? And I did the same thing, and my knees are killing me too, and that's totally fine. But, but you let them know, and you go, okay, well, if you do X, then you kind of know Y is going to be the result, yep. right? And then you, so then you pull it back and you go, okay, well, how could we avoid this in the future, right? Well, you might just simply say, it may not be an imbalance in the hips. It may not be any, any sort of, you know, gait problem or whatnot, right? It could simply be, dude, you went out and ran six miles when you haven't run six miles consecutively, you know, in three months. So why, what are you thinking, right? Right. Um, it, it may be that pulling them back and say, okay, so how are we going to avoid this in the future? We're going to avoid this in the future by, I want you to focus on the frequency, not your duration, right? And shift that mindset a little bit because if you just run – two miles a day for a full week, in aggregate, you're going to get in double what you just got in in that one shot. Right. And you know what's going to happen is you're going to actually feel better. Your body's going to build that tolerance. And then the next time you actually go out to run six miles, your body's going to go, oh, I'm exhausted. But you're probably not going to get that same type of itis. Right. So what about the flip right? side? What about the, the, the folks that are out there grinding every day who start to break down for whatever reason? Yeah, so now those, those are a bit more complicated because those you actually have to spend some time actually assessing and evaluating and uh, digging a little bit into their training history. I mean, first questions are, you know, have there been any significant changes in your training 
recently, you know, in the past two or three weeks? You know, like, have you entered into, you know, more of a speed cycle? Have you, you know, because the trails are muddy, are you on the road now a bit more? Have you changed, you know, shoes? Although I don't think shoes makes that much of a difference, but that's a different topic. Um, you know, you know, what has changed? Has anything changed? Even have stuff changed in your social life? Are you traveling a bit more where, you know, you're on planes and you're, and, you know, I see this with all my employees that are over at Adidas, right? I mean, they go through this period of, of going to Germany back and forth and they come back injured, right? Um, again, different topic, right? But getting into uh, their lives a little bit more and see if anything's majorly changed. And if nothing's majorly changed, then you get, okay, well, maybe, you know, why don't we look at um, some, some parameters, right? Um, and it depends on how the injury is kind of popping up. So I might look at them on the treadmill. I might just use a really basic program. Uh, I tend to think things are horses, not zebras, right? Simple. There's no reason to make it more complicated than it needs to be unless you need to. So use a simple program like Huddle, right, which is uh, you can – it used to be um, Coach's Eye or something like that. But anyways, use that program. You can video them from side and the back on the treadmill. You can get a little sense of their gait. You could go that route first, or you could take the other approach where you can actually get them on the table and you can do a full orthopedic assessment, you know, manual muscle testing, joint range of motion, uh, coordination on single leg uh, activities as well. Um, you're going to get, whether you start at either one of those ends, you're going to pretty much be able to predict what you're going to see on the, on the other side, um, opposite of whatever you started with. Um, you know, what, do you have specific questions about sort of cadence or, uh, you know, stride mechanics or anything like that? Well, yeah, I mean, I know that there are definitely recommended cadence levels to reduce ground forces and those kinds of things. And, um, yeah. So yeah, tell the listeners about that. And then do you use any, I know that there's a few little gadgets in, in uh, in our technological world that people can use, um, to help them with that. Do you use any of those? Um, yeah, you know, I think, so, so, so maybe going back originally, so like cadence, right? You know, uh, kind of in the popular literature, you know, the, the, the number 180 is thrown around a lot. Um, and that's, that's not really the benchmark. That was basically a number that they found from researching, and I want to say it was the either the Athens or the uh, Atlanta Olympics, where they just simply did, uh, they calculated data of what the stride rate of, um, of all the runners were on the track. And what they came down with was essentially that it was about 180 on average for all the elite runners. Um, now, for the recreational runner, or for really any runner, if we're trying to reduce ground reaction forces and we think that it is a cadence issue, um, the idea is that you raise it by 10%, right? So if they're, you know, if they're at a 140 cadence or a 150 cadence, um, you're going to raise it by about 10% and, and just see how that goes. And one of those tips or tricks that you can do with that I really like to do that on a treadmill because they're in a, they're in a controlled environment. And the idea is that as you increase your cadence, you're not trying to increase the speed at which you're running. You're trying to increase the turnover of your feet. Um, and that helps to usually do a couple things, shorten up their stride. It usually puts them a little bit more on the forefoot and, and, and taking a little bit away of that breaking force from, from less heel striking. 
Um, and what it also does is impacts the angle at which the tibia is at, uh, at impact. Um, and so there's, a, you know, there's free metronome programs that you can use. Uh, those are really easy. Um, but simply, a lot of the times, I just have the patients count, right? I'll just say, okay, from, you know, from 0 to 10, I want you to count how many times your right foot hits the floor, right? And all I want you to do is increase it by 1 for this next minute, right? Um, so that's, that's, those are some of the little tips and tricks I use. And then I would implement, start implementing that into their training program. Have them doing like little intervals of that where they're trying to increase their cadence but not actually increase their speed. Maybe anywhere from 30 seconds up to three minutes, eventually getting up into 12 minutes out of their 25, 30 minute, 40 minute run. Um, and what you'll notice is that over about four to six to eight months, you'll really start to see a, an increase in efficiency um, in, in that gait and also in their pacing and their energy levels too. So, John, I want to talk a little bit about the therapy landscape, especially in Portland with folks you work with and, and your colleagues. And I'm wondering, first and foremost, you talk about wearing a coach's hat, wearing a PT hat. How does your diversity in background and, and what you've experienced and who you have worked with how does that help you bring multiple ideas, multiple looks to the table? And are you finding that more and more of your colleagues have that diversity in background, which enriches what you guys can offer each other and, and those you work with? Um, I, there's a couple sides to that. Um, I, that's actually one thing that sort of disappoints me in the PT world is that um, the majority of my colleagues don't have, unfortunately, the, the similar backgrounds that um, that I might bring to the table. That, that, that uh, has to surprise you, right? Because you're all active. You, you would imagine that um, people would draw from all their own personal experiences. Well, why do you think that is? Well, um, it's hard, to, it's hard to say. Um, I, I think maybe still a lot of people have the same impression that I originally had about the profession of physical therapy, that it's just working with a bunch of old people. And that, you know, in many cases, that can be a very true statement. But I think one of the challenges is, is, is the actual profession itself. We, you know, we have a really broad scope of practice. Um, you know, we, you can be on one end, you can be working with the highest elite levels of rugby teams and, you know, Major League Baseball, football, running, what have you. And then on the, on the, the other end of the spectrum, you've got, you know, skilled nursing facilities and acute patient in-care and neural rehab and cardio rehab, right? Um, and you've got a whole spectrum in between. Um, and you've also have this huge explosion in the industry and in the profession within the last, you know, 10 to 15 years too. Um, so you have this huge scope of practice, and you also have a really undefined level of skill within that whole scope of practice, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, the, it, it's the same across the board. I know the landscape in Portland is pretty interesting, but, you know, even here, I, I will tell you, I, I have, honestly, specific physical therapists who I will use for specific Injuries. So someone has developed a passion for low back pain or someone has a passion for the, the injured shoulder or um, we have um, a handful of really good endurance physical therapists that that's their niche. They 
they deal with the runner. If you send your injured endurance runner or triathlete to the therapist whose passion is low back pain, um, you know, your result isn't going to be what you want. And so I think, you know, John's gravitated towards what he's passionate about. And so it, it shines through in his work, but you know, a lot of folks are, are passionate about something else or we do need the general physical therapist who can, who can do a little bit of, of everything. So I think that, um, I think the landscape there though, John, and I don't fully understand it. I, you can certainly explain to our, our listeners about how, um, you know, the athletic industry has fueled some of the therapy clinics and the, you know, the, the, the running programs and how, how did that all, like why Portland? How did that all start? Well, I think it, it follows the money, right? I mean, I mean, Nike is, is the 10,000 pound gorilla, right? That's, um, that has the funds to support, you know, uh, from a running standpoint, you know, professional runners. I mean, you know, there's like 20 people in the world that can actually be a professional runner and only have to run and not have to work three did other they, jobs or survive. Did they just decide, though, one day that they that the United States didn't have a strong running program and they were going to be the leaders of it? I mean, where did it? Why? Well, I mean, I think it, I think it really comes from back in the day of, you know, Bowerman, who really, you know, Bowerman and Arthur Lydiard, like, who, you know, who he studied um, from, like, you know, Bowerman, one of the coaches at, at Oregon, uh, really sort of started the jogging boom, right? And then when you have Phil Knight and all those guys that ran together, um, and then you have the Prefontaine era, um, you know, you had this big momentum happening uh, in the in the 70s, and then you know you then you have the unfortunate death of, of Prefontaine, and that kind of crushed uh, crushed sort of American distance running, um, and then I think. Um, you know, you get you get a dynamic personality like Alberto Salazar that that's successful and does well. Uh, another U of O guy. Um, you know, again, so many ties between Nike and U of O that uh, you know. And then Phil Knight says, "Well, let's let's make a let's make it a project and let's make the Oregon projects. You know, what brings back American distance running?" Um, and to to a certain extent, you know, in the last you know ten years, they they're killing it. I mean, they're definitely making it. Uh, Legitimate. I mean, look at Galen. Look at Jordan right now in the marathon. You know, Centro pulls out the gold medal. Uh, you know, in the fifteen hundred. Um, you know, the first guy to do it since I don't know how long. Yeah. Um, so, so things are happening. Um, you know, I think the other stuff is that it's climate too. I mean, I, I didn't realize it, but until I moved here twelve years ago, I mean, we have literally the best trail running here in the world. Yeah. I mean, it is epic. You just have to have um, your rain you can, gear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you can train all year round and, and they all do. And you know what, if you, if it, you're really looking for some sun, you hop in a plane and go to Arizona for, for, for a few weeks, Yeah, you know, and, and get that training in. But from a recreational standpoint, you've got Nike, you've got Adidas, you've got, you know, you've got all the other gear companies here. You've got Brooks right up the road in Seattle. Um, you know, this, and sort of the cluster in Northeast. These are the two footwear, gear, and apparel hubs of America. And just the dynamic now, not just companies and, and brands that are there, but running and, and the personalities. And, and I think especially over the last decade, especially with social media and accessibility, I mean, the sport is, is going through another renaissance, don't you think, John? 
Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, you, you look at all different angles of it, not just from you know the, the gear side, but look at the event side of things. Yeah. I mean, really making it accessible to you know the the weekend warrior you know whether it's the rock and rolls or whether it's all these different fun runs that are happening right um you know i mean running feels well running or the tough mutter boom track. also that is oh, popped God. up that's <laughs> Spartan, tough mutters all of these uh crossfit gyms that are you know kind of for the runners that aren't runners, you know, don't um, get Doc started. Yeah. <laughs> well, I always say, I always say, well, uh, yeah, Doc and I always talk about this, but I always say that if, uh, as long as CrossFit and Five Finger Shoes and Barefoot running around, I get job security. I'm good. <laughs> Those shoes creep me out. <laughs> well, I, I, I know John for for many years, and I do know that he's a he's a little bit of an a, a equipment. Uh, I don't know what, what you say, John. Uh, equipment guru. The guy's got. All the latest and greatest. So, I mean, out of the stuff, since you're in, I mean, you know, uh, whatever Adidas decides to do, you're probably the first to see it. So, like, is there any, like, cool stuff that's, that, that's gear-related that's coming out? I mean, not, not even just for runners, but for, for all of us. Uh, I think a lot of it is, is really moving towards that wearable stuff, right? I mean, yeah, we've had heart rate monitors and we've had GPSs, um, but I really think it's the, uh, it's, it's the apps now that can interpret and integrate that information yep. um, that is really going to sort of move the needle a bit more. Um, it's funny that you say that, Doc, though. I, I think that... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I was in college. I was that that guy that had the you know the latest backpack, the latest pair of shoes, the latest Kizit Gasmo or whatnot. In the uh, having now been sort of in this industry for for a while, and even being introduced to the product side and helping with some of the development and whatnot, yeah, I, <laughs> I learned how much it's kind of smoke and mirrors, and it's a lot of marketing. And yeah. uh, because you know, as you look at the running related research. Um, you know, it it more and more. It's pretty undeniable that shoes really don't make a difference. Yeah. Um, and that, so, let me let me phrase that. They don't make a difference to make you better. They can significantly make a difference to make you worse. Right. Um, and I won't I won't say anything about specific brands or anything like that. But um, I will. Simp- I'll stick to the research if we want to talk about that. But that is that is definitely true. Like shoes really don't make a difference. And I personally even child with that, right? You know, going with some of the best $175, $250 running shoes and comparing that to, you know, big box takedown running shoes where, you know, they cost 40, 50 bucks. And, you know, the reality is, is, is it comes down to the mechanics. Yeah. Chris, you wear, uh, orthotics. I do not. Yeah. So the, that's one of the biggest things I see now is everybody, I, I will have patients that come into the office and literally demand that we write them a prescription to get an orthotic because somehow that's going to correct them. I mean, there are definitely people who need orthotics, but that is another huge market where, you know, you can go into Walgreens now and stand on some little thing and then it spits out your custom orthotic. And, uh, you know, we try to preach to shoes are shoes. If if you have them fit correctly and have someone look at your how you walk and your gait, there's there's a particular shoe that's designed for you. Although you know? John, if you want to send me a couple pairs of hyper boosts and a couple Yeezys and a twelve, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't be upset. 
<laughs> he he Johnny gets all the the early release stuff, so yeah, we're gonna have him on speed dial. It's crazy though. You mentioned the marketing and like even the new Adidas commercial with the athletes and celebrities, and you've got everyone from James Harden to Chris Bryant to push a T at a table together. Just the reach that these brands have and the cross section of people that they're reaching and affecting now is just it's it's unbelievable compared to you know when when a lot of these brands are maybe seen as specialization brands you know 10 or 20 years ago oh well i mean it's 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 the crossover between sport and lifestyle now right that's yeah. that's what that's what the cross is and that's what really the growth is for these companies right now is that it's you know the sports are kind of, you know, kind of staying the same, but it's when you cross over into that lifestyle and whoever's winning kind of the lifestyle brand is really, is really on top of the market. And, and, you know, let's be honest, it it goes cyclical, you know, Adidas is on top right now, but, you know, um, but, you know, it won't be long. I'm sure that Nike takes, takes over again and, um, you know, maybe Under Armour resurfaces again, who knows, but um, it it, it is cyclical. Um, I mean, the, the, the funny thing is, is having a teenager at home, it is, unbelievable how social media mm. drives this you know, the yeezys and the lines outside the door and and uh you know these little pop-up sales that you know you gotta sit there and log on to your computer a million times to try to get a pair of these sneakers and and uh you know they're not trying them on it's just they it's a it's a fad everybody's got to have it well, the reality of that is that actually the shoe brand companies, uh, I, you know, I have, I have patients that are directly related to the to the Easy brand, and and you know, the reality is they, the shoe companies aren't making the margin off of those shoes. Who's making the margin off of those shoes and like triple what the shoe company margin is are the resellers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you know, if you go on right now, um, and it can, you know, I'm I'm learning all this secondhand for my 15 year old, but you can, you know, you get a pair of Yeezys for. 200 bucks or something, and then you can turn around and sell them for $2,000. Yeah. Or Anthony Hardaway hasn't played basketball <laughs> right. in 20 years, and the, the penny foam posits for Nike are going for hundreds and hundreds Killing and it. hundreds of dollars resale. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and so, and maybe to go back on the orthotic thing, Zach, uh, you know, in, in my opinion, you know, well, not even my opinion, and the research is very clear um, that there is no statistically significant difference and decrease in symptoms or change in symptoms with a custom orthotic versus an over-the-counter orthotic. Right. And what does that tell us? That really tells us that, in our, that it really comes down to movement, right? I mean, you know, you're taking these measurements and metrics of, of the foot, and then you're putting an orthotic under it to fit it, but it doesn't, it doesn't account for movement, right? And it's the same thing with stability shoes, right? You know, you might post somebody up in a stable position when they're standing there and it gives them more support. But when you take them into the dynamic world uh, of how we move, all of all of that information falls apart and then the mechanics fall apart as well, right? Well, that's, so a, the, I, that's the thing. I mean, it, it, you, you cannot, especially for runners, and this is why I try to, tell folks is you go to the shoe store and you you find your the coolest looking shoe you know you want to be stylish ultra boosts yeah you get your and and then you go out and run in those and uh, yeah. you fall apart but when you go to pick out a pair of shoes it has to be a functional yeah fit especially if you're going to be doing an endurance sport in the shoe i mean you can get away with 
you know, a Yeezy or a really cool looking boost or something, you know, for your normal day to day stuff. But as soon as you start adding mileage to it, you've got to have the shoe that's made for you. And the only way you do that is to have someone fit it, bring two or three versions of that shoe to you. And you have to walk out of there, you know, because unfortunately, usually when you do that, they bring the shoe and it's like some ugly orange <laughs> fluorescent, you know. Shoe. Yeah, I, I remember being a freshman in high school and getting fitted, and I was like, wow, these Brooks Adrenalines don't look real <laughs> cool, but man, they stood up over cross country season. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I recommend. I, I said, you know, patients always ask me, what shoe should I be in? And I said, you should be in the shoe that is the most comfortable when you put it on in the store. Yeah. Right. The whole notion of having to break in a shoe is a bunch of bullhonky. Yeah. And that's, hmm. it's just, it's it. interesting. Um, and, and, and to go back to the orthotics thing, the way that I in, implement that into my practice is that, um, you know, I really educate people that in orthotics are a tool, right? Unless you have some sort of anatomical abnormality or some sort, some sort of malalignment that really needs true correction on our, all the time, orthotics are used as a tool to help offload and externally support tissue that's being overutilized or overstressed, right? And so it's a tool to offload that while you continue to strengthen so that you can internally support that tissue that's being overloaded. And, and it's a tool, right? You're going to use it maybe for a couple of weeks here, and then you're not going to throw them away. You're going to put them in your sort of running box, and then you may need them again in, you know, a year or six months or something like that when when maybe you overload it again and you just need a little bit more of that support so that you can offload that tissue while, to give your tissue time to adapt and, and become more durable again, right? Yep. But it's a tool. Yep. It's interesting stuff. I, uh, I mean, I think that uh, a lot of this is just really clever marketing and it's a huge industry. And, and uh, again, it's, it's always nice to kind of get back to what the facts are and, and what the, what the folks who are doing this every day see and believe and that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I spend the majority of my time educating, Yeah, edu educating, right. Yeah. And uh, whether it's, you know, talking to other docs or whether it's talking to other coaches, you know, and I think from a, from a PT level, um, you know, having come from the personal training and the strength and conditioning world, I, it mystifies me why PTs and trainers don't have better relationships professionally. Um, I really help to foster those relationships because I'm working at the top of my game at that point. I'm not interested in coaching people anymore. I'm not interested in, in putting together strength and conditioning programs for, for patients, right? My job is to, to assess, diagnose, and help guide those other strength coaches and trainers in, in what that specific athlete needs, right? Um, you know, I might be involved for a few weeks from time to time, but really my job is to turn them over as quickly and as effectively as possible back to their normal training regimen and, and the support team that they have, right? Well, John, we like to end the conversations with this, whether it's a piece of functional advice or, or life advice, big picture, give our listeners just one piece of John Ang certified advice that you think they can just kind of plug and play uh, immediately. 
Well, it's an answer that when people ask me, man, how did you get this gig at Adidas? Hmm. Well, and I might, uh, this doesn't apply just to this. I think it applies to the world um, and how you fit yourself into it is that, you know, I did my job well, I didn't suck, and I gave a shit. I think that's... It might be a little too simple, but that's, that's, that's how I think you should approach everything in life. I think that's very well said. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us, buddy. We appreciate it. The website, villageptpdx.com. John Eng from Portland. Appreciate the time, man. Thanks for hopping on with us. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Thank you to John, and thank you to Dr. J. Thank you to John. Another edition of the Smart Podcast in the Books with Dr. Jason Young. JasonPYoungMD.com is the website, and find Jason at Advanced Orthopedics at 8225 Clayton Road. As always, we love your feedback. Email us, smrtpodcast at gmail.com. That's smrtpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to get your questions, thoughts, requests for future episodes of the Smart Podcast. Until next week, for Dr. Young, I'm Chris Raby. Stronger.